Hi, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is my channel, Plain Spoken. I'm a conservative United Methodist, and my purpose is trying to make my way through new developments in the current divide and make sense of it for myself and hopefully for other people who tune in. I'm trying to do it in such a way that people who lean left are not immediately turned off, although um, sometimes based on what sources I turn to, that's unavoidable. Um, but my hope is that even if you do lean left or you, you don't have a dog in this fight, that um, I don't seem like a partisan ideologue, but I'm trying to think critically uh, through these things. So I'm going to invite you on the front end. If you see any flaws in uh, how I think through these things, go ahead and, and uh, write in the comments or send me an email at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. And I do read those things if you go through the comments on these videos, you'll see that I, I, I write a lot of people back, and I, I really enjoy the engagement, so um, thanks for that. Um, we're going to begin. This is a, a weekly update. Sometimes I have uh, individual stories that I want to talk about, but they're not worth uh, taking a whole episode on, so I've got six things today. I try and make it through in uh, 30 minutes, so we'll see how I do. But the first, I, I kind of wanted to brag on myself a little bit, uh, not really, but point attention to the fact that John Lomparis picked up my uh, interview with Robert Barnes. Uh, he had, wrote an article released today called The United Methodist Church Should Not Be Unitarian Methodist Confederacy, and thank you, John, for that flattering image that you uh, chose of me there. Um, but anyway, he, he supplies a lot of details that we were not able to cover in the interview. I'm not a details person. I, I do what I can. But in his analysis, he talks about um, the provisions designed in General Conference 2016 for how um, the, the bishops were getting away with doing stuff they shouldn't do because they were only regionally accountable. So we created a, uh, an additional accountability system where the, the national bishops or the Council of Bishops should be able to hold bishops that um, preach heresy or do things wrong to hold them accountable. Um, and in the case of uh, Karen Olivito, it did not happen. And so uh, if you haven't seen my interview with Robert Barnes, it's it's a good one. I, I, I think it's, it's helpful. But if you've already seen it and you want more of those uh, details, I, w I don't want to say it's minutia. I would say it's procedural things that really are important to know. Um, I haven't read the article through as as solidly as I should, so I'm you know after this hopefully going to read it better just so I feel like I really um, have a good grasp of what's going on. So um, anyway, I I do think that this is a situation that's worth knowing about, and I should go ahead and separate myself a little bit uh, from John. Uh, he and I largely stand in the same place, but. I don't want to at all insinuate that uh, Ms. Oliveto is is a Unitarian. If anything, the 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 doctrine that that I suspected she had was more of like an Arianism or a Gnosticism, maybe a Binitarianism. But um, the Unitarian thing, uh, I don't know if that's what she herself would identify with. I genuinely wonder what she identify. I mean, clearly she doesn't identify with an Orthodox, recognizable biblical. Christian theology, but I wonder what words she would give to that, if any at all. Uh, I notice a lot of people don't even like defining uh, what they believe in, and uh, they think it's like an insult to to put labels on things, but I, I think it's helpful. Um, so anyway, I, that's all I think I wanted to say about that. 
The other follow-up I wanted to do was um, I released a, a piece yesterday on Lovett Williams' article through the Lewis Center on Church uh, Leadership. I forget what his outfit's called, but he, he released a, um, a statistical analysis that I, I did not think was significant and I thought easily played into racist, classist tropes. And so if you haven't seen that, go ahead and watch it. Uh, but one of the people I, I consulted before releasing anything public was uh, Odell Horn, who I've also got an interview with. He's he's a lovely person. And he sent me this article you should see on the screen, and he said, this, this should explain where black churches are at in the United Methodist Church. Um, the article is called Black Cur- Clergy Vow to Forge Their Own Path. It was uh, written in 2018 about a uh, a gathering of the Progressive National Baptist Convention led by Calvin Butts. And I haven't heard of Mr. Butts before Odell uh, pointed me to him. And um, it, there are just a couple quotes from this that I wanted to lift up because they made me uncomfortable, so might as well make you uncomfortable. Um, starting in the second paragraph, rejecting the, quote, politics of fear, they say, has taken hold in this election season. The pastors assembled and this should not be ignored as the two sides work to get out the vote. As the body of Christ, we do not serve as mere mascots of the liberal left sent by patronizing paternalists to serve as the point on the head of their ideological spear. Read the declaration released. But you know what? I should have found the, the actual declaration, but it's from the president, Timothy Stewart, and Reverend Calvin Butts, the denomination's social justice chair. Nor do we set horses with those of the religious right who hide their rampant racism and hysterical hypocrisy amidst the existential ruins of a morally and theologically bankrupt spirituality. Uh, I, I like <laughs> the language. I mean, I would, I would, <laughs> I don't agree that this is who uh, conservatives are, but uh, the, the language is colorful. Um, you know, and I wonder... I've, I've interviewed a lot of people from Africa. I've tried to, to speak with uh, American uh, black Christians. Um, tried to. I have, you know, and I, th- there are several locally that are friends. Uh, I do often see liberal churches as using black people as mascots rather than really listening to what their concerns are. Um, and my understanding is that, you know, say within the Democratic Party, black constituencies are routinely much more conservative than the prevailing very progressive uh, minority. And rather than listening to black voices, they continually um, speak in their name while promoting values that, that the black community does not sign on with. Now, within the conservative community, I have no doubt that there are some racists. To say that we have rampant racism would be a, a problem. Hysterical hypocrisy you, you notice the alliteration here, rampant racism, hysterical hypocrisy. I, I uh, Anyway, I'm sure we have had hypocritical, um, well, you know, something I'll bring up with the Taylor Watson Burton Edwards article is whether or not the WCA walked away from the table of the protocol. You know, if they were committed to the protocol, then why did they start the denomination? That could seem like hypocrisy. Um I, I, uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, but I, I just I kind of want to argue with this, but it's not my place, maybe. Um, skipping down the article a little bit, 
Um, but said that as black preachers, quote, we have our own view of the gospel message, which is the only authentic view. I thought that was crazy. Naming Franklin, Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr., and Paula White, all members of the religious right, he said, quote, they're heretics as far as we're concerned, and hypocrites. Man, the hypocrites thing, fine, but heretics? Um, and we need not be unafraid to say this and stand firmly on who we are. I just thought, you know, I man, I I have styled myself very differently from the three named here, but uh, I'm not real eager to call them heretics right out. Um, so I, I I texted Odell back and I said, "Do you stand by these statements?" Um, and I haven't heard back from him. I, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I, we're friends either way. But I I think the problem comes when any constituency thinks that they have the only authentic expression of the gospel. Um, I'd like to think, you know, what what I'm personally aiming for in the future is a colorblind society where we're integrated. Uh, but I think while we have separate white and black spaces, I think that there's always going to be ethnocentrism. I think there's always going to be grouping by affinity group. As long as we have different cultures associated with different colors of people, you're going to have division Uh, You're going to have a lot of uh, unfortunate things being said and done that show preference for one's in-group. I think you just have to break down the in-group. You know, I I would have us divide along theological lines, not racial lines. So I'm hoping for a future where, you know, and I know there are some black people would hear this as imperialist. I'm hoping there's a future where there's not a black church and there's not a white church. There's just the church. I don't think there's going to be a black section in heaven or a white section in heaven I don't see why there should be one now. I just think it's it's all people that are called, that are not called, that they're very comfortable with people like them. And um, I think we have to become more like each other. And I think that's what what happened before the current anti-racist moment, which is trying to, to get us back in our separate corners. So anyway, take that for what it's worth. Um, I wanted to turn to... This article by Taylor Watson Burton Edwards, I thought it was thoughtful. It came out a few weeks ago. That's that's Taylor right there. Uh, Mr. Edwards, I'm just going to call him Reverend Ed- Edwards, he is one of the smartest people I know of in the United Methodist Church. Actually, he's not. He serves our denomination, but he's not a United Methodist anymore. He's a Lutheran, um, but he still works for us. He knows a great deal about our polity, about... Uh, history and theology. Uh, it kills me that he leans left, um, but I, I, I routinely appreciate his insights, and I think he's he's generally very fair. Um, and he wrote this, um, you know, if you saw my weekly update last week, we had one by Cynthia Astle that was talking about, um, oh, what was, it was talking about, uh, not string theory, uh, quantum, physics. quantum physics, she was talking about. Here he's talking about uh, neurology and uh, neuropsychology, and he comes up with some recommendations for how we ought to do General Conference 2024 um, that are pretty practical, whether or not you're going to brain science. Uh, reduce the number of options and stressors and build consensus and satisfaction. Uh, all that makes sense. The, the problem is we have a system in place that does not provide for that. So, He's, uh, he, he comes up with some recommendations for how it is that, that we could promote that. Um, so first off, 
he talks about the stressful environment and how you can't really handle all of these options uh, in the moment. He, he talks about on a, on a practical level, general conferences bound by a rule added to the denomination's Book of Discipline in 2016 to consider and take a vote on every petition before it. So there are at least 10 different plans for adding a structure or restructuring or dividing or dissolving the denomination that are coming before the general conference, and those don't include the protocol and the Christmas covenant. Now, I like the protocol. I think all the conservatives still like the protocol, um, my understanding was all the left-leaning people walked away from it, and the right-leaning people stayed and said, hey, why'd you leave? Now, I've since come to understand that, that centrists and liberals see it differently, but the thing to focus on right here is they have to entertain all of them at this next general conference, which I like, but to seriously entertain them as a conciliar lawmaking body uh, takes time and energy, and it'd be very frustrating to do. So he says, you have to build consensus. So uh, that means getting people together, caucus groups, and building a consensus before general conference so that there are clear favorites and clear ones that that just aren't going to pan out. And in theory, I like that. But the problem is, we saw the bishops try and do that in 2019 and it was, to people watching like me, it seemed very dishonest. They, they did not even want to present the traditional plan, which was a plan that prevailed. It was clearly the desire of the General Assembly that that is what would be brought, uh, but the bishops tried to create a false consensus around the uh, one-church plan, which is pretty much what the Christmas covenant is uh, with some um, protections from the Africans put in place. Um, now, uh, so anyway, I, I appreciate Reverend Burton's, Edward's uh, thing here, but I just don't know how that consensus could happen in an honest way that's not manipulative. But if it can happen, I would love that. Um, going on, he talks about it's, it's time right now to build a consensus option, but then he gives this history of how the protocol fell apart that I just thought was interesting. Uh, Bishop Yambasu and Junius Dotson both died. I don't see why that would have any bearing on support for the protocol. The confessing movement ceased operations. Once again, I don't see why that would have bearing. But the Wesleyan Covenant Association has a walked away from it as it has also launched its own denomination, the Global Methodist Church. And if, you know, a lot of us have forgotten this history, even though it's recent because there have just been so many developments. But when the protocol was first written uh, by Feinberg and the different constituencies that came to do it, the agreement was that, um, as I recall, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say they wouldn't start the new denomination. Conservatives wouldn't start the new denomination until the protocol was passed. But when General Conference got pushed back time and time again, it, it was just impossible to hold that, that momentum back, and they started the Global Methodist Church, and the way that Reverend Edwards is portraying that is they walked away from it. I don't know if WCA leaders would see it that way. I've also spoken with a, a centrist leader named David Livingston who talks about, um, and I need to do the research on this, he says that when the Wesleyan Covenant Association got together and they changed their mission strategy, they explicitly broke the terms of the protocol agreement and they were the ones 
to make it all fall apart, not the progressive and liberal uh, uh, groups. I have a hard time seeing how that's real. I need to I need to talk with somebody at the WCA. So if anybody knows of somebody you think I should speak with, go ahead and connect us. Um, but then he also talks about Reconciling Ministries Network. We're going to talk about that here at the next uh, uh, topic. They're a progressive partner in the protocol not negotiations, as well as a number of other progressive and centrist allies have declared they no longer believe the original protocol to be workable or just solution given all that's transpired in the past two years. Um, I don't... The way that I've interpreted it so far is that liberal left-leaning factions discovered that they were in a position of, of power and they no longer needed to negotiate, and so why would they? Uh, I'm not sure what has transpired in the last two years that would make the protocol any less workable than what happened before that. So I wish he had spent time on that. Anyway, he talks about promoting a protocol 2.0, and I instantly got excited. I haven't heard anyone in leadership talking about a protocol 2.0. My, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of people saying, hey, anything could be adopted in 2024. You can't say that, that conservative churches are going to be trapped. Um, here, let's get this quote from Taylor. He says, there still needs to be a less disruptive and destructive process for separation. That conversation should include but not be dominated by a streamlined, fair, time-limited— yeah, remember that fair thing when we come to the Tom Lambrecht article— time-limited and responsible plan for separation of congregations that do not wish to remain within the United Methodist Church after 2024. I'm so happy with him for saying that. I, I, I hope that that's how the institution feels. I hope that's how— all of our leaders feel. I, I hope it's clear to everybody that churches that don't want to remain shouldn't have to remain. Um, the, the problem I see with this is we've already got a deal, 2553, that really works in the favor of the institution in a lot of ways. They are holding, they're guarding all the gates. They get to charge lots of money. They get to determine the language and the conditions on which churches disaffiliate. My only fear is that if they are going to design something in 2024, it's even more prohibitive, you know. But if they're if they're okay with something like 2553 or less prohibitive, then why are they fighting so many churches that want to leave right now? I just don't understand. If they're interested in letting unwilling churches go, then why are they fighting this throughout the whole connection? That makes no sense to me. So that, that's, that's the question I wanted to ask. If you know a good answer to that, please give it to me. I want to understand this better. But as it seems to me, the institution is not at all interested in letting unwilling churches go. As I understand it, they're happy to take our money. They're happy to report our, our, our church growth on their forms, but they don't want to hear our voices. They don't want to go our way. They want to go their way. So uh, with, with that in mind, uh, you know, there's a couple other things I could point out in this article. You read it. I think it's a worthy read. Uh, the, the next thing I would talk about is the, this, uh, it came out, I don't know, a month ago, and it's not from UM News. It's from uh, Mainline Church Editor for, oh, I forget. Uh, go ahead and look it up, TJ. But he talks about, you know, a lot of us within the United Methodist Church have been crying foul over different things. We have clear uh, instructions within the Book of Discipline about how things should be done and that are not done. 
One of the things is, and I'll go ahead and quote from paragraph 613, no annual conference board, agency, committee, commission, or council shall give the United Methodist funds to any gay caucus group or otherwise use such funds to promote the acceptance of homosexuality or violate the express commitment of the UMC not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay uh, members and friends. So this was broken, and this has been a longstanding thing. It's been a weird thing all along that uh, we're letting um, there be reconciling churches that, that declare affiliation with the RMN, but uh, this is at the highest level of the church. The General Board of Church and Society gave a $2,000 grant to Reconciling Ministries Network that was designed for uh, creating a curriculum for Vacation Bible School. Now, this is this is a very contentious thing to do. Um, the dollar amount really isn't very important. $2,000 is nothing compared to, you know, heck, I think if you put the whole superstructure of the UMC together, it'd be like a billion dollars. This is a symbolic thing where they're saying the rules, it doesn't matter what's in the, the discipline. We're going to do what we want to do. Um, if you, you know, uh, we're not going to be constrained by the language that's in there. The other thing is, this is happening in the midst of a significant cultural backlash against liberal left-leaning, um, well, I, very far-left progressive uh, movements of having um, very sexualized content given to children. You know, when you have RMN designing a curriculum for vacation Bible school, the fear is, you know, I haven't seen any of the particulars of this, but the fear is that they're introducing children to ideologically sexually charged material with United Methodist dollars. And if that's the case, that is really problematic. They are inculcating children with values that do not currently reflect the United Methodist Church. This is a breach of our covenant relationship. Um, go that, ahead. That, are, that article's on the Christian Post. Uh, it was Wednesday, February 1st. Okay. Sure. The Christian Post is the one who published this. All right. Um, the, the quote here from the article, the board of RMN did not believe that the grant violated denominational rules. The quote here is, the program is in line with the GBCS grant policy and not in conflict with the United Methodist Book of Discipline. They just, it's this weird thing. You find it in politics where someone is clearly doing something. They say, no, I'm not doing that. And that's all there is to it. That's just, that doesn't pass the smell test. You know, it, it seems like you're doing it. You're doing it. Um, GBCS has uh, had a long history here, and I, I just put I, those last, uh, those, those two paragraphs right here highlight, this isn't the first time they've done overt things. They've, they, despite our statement on abortion, they affiliated with the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, um, and then they've, they've intentionally done other things to show that they are against the majority of our denomination with respect to LGBTQ, um, you know, I, I should say, I, modern gender theory, that we're just not on board with modern gender theory. They've taken a side, it's a far left side, and they've been given money, and they're going to do what they want with it. And that's all there is to it. And that just irks people like me. I already knew how they felt about such things, but the fact that they'll take, you know, when you think about where this money comes from, it doesn't come out of thin air. Um, humble people of no account, Thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them across the United States put their hard-earned money in the offering plate, trusting that the institution is going to respect them and their values. And this sort of thing just breaks that trust. 
and that's it's it's a real shame. So um, let's talk about uh, this other article, Finding Fairness, by Tom Lambrecht. It was published on Good News, I think, today. Yeah, March 3rd, 2023. And he talks about something that, um, you know, he starts off with a good metaphor. He grew up with some brothers, and they play games together. And there is, anytime you play games with somebody, you have to play fair. Otherwise, you know, somebody takes their ball and goes home. So we all have an innate sense of fairness. We'll, we'll disagree on some of the We'll quibble about details, but there are certain general practices of fairness that that need to be honored on both sides if we're going to be in a relationship together or if we're going to get out of a relationship together. It'd be better to play fair. And I know that crying foul is an annoying thing, especially when you're winning. Um, But the thing is, if you want to be able to respect yourself on the other side of a conflict, you have to behave yourself with, with dignity. You have to be principled as you as you go through these things. And what Lambrecht uh, is seeing, what I'm seeing as I'm researching different annual conferences, is there's a lot of unfair play going on. Um, and when I say play, it, it ain't a game. This, this is uh, significant stuff, and it, it really does not speak well of the powers that be whenever they're not being fair in the way that they exercise their authority. So uh, Lambrecht focuses on, I think, four areas where he critiques the establishment throughout the United Methodist Connection. The first is information sharing. When this all began, 2553, uh, WCA, uh, Good News, different conservative caucus groups could come in and present information in local churches that uh, were about these issues uh, but the policy changed along the line, and now I'm not familiar with any annual conferences where it's okay to have the WCA come and present. Um, when you can only get information from one source, then that means that that source can easily manipulate you. Um, it's just not a good deal. People people have to be able to do their own research and critical thinking. Uh, the second part is a, a transparent process, and the thing is it really has seemed uh, Byzantine or labyrinth-like. It's, it seemed very difficult to navigate this process from conference to conference. Um, a lot of conferences, I was talking about West Virginia annual conference. I did a report on them a couple weeks ago where uh, at, as of right then, they had no disaffiliation agreement. They had nothing in writing for churches to, to go through and, and figure out how to get through the process. That's, that's not good. The next is the financial costs. Um, I heard yesterday that uh, Karen Olavito, who's in charge of uh, Mountain Southwest Annual Conference, I think, um, uh, won't tell churches what they have to pay before they take the vote. They can't make an educated decision. They have to go out on a limb, and then after the vote, they have to be holding the bag for whatever it is that they say they owe. And then there are a lot of uh, situations, uh, supposedly, in which conferences have refused to show their work and how they got to the number that is quoted to the local church. Mountain Sky, thank you. Um, and then changing the rules in the middle of the game, and you've seen this in lots of annual conferences where there is an initial disaffiliation agreement or, or uh, informally a way things are done, and then they, uh, they make it harder. You know, um, I heard just this morning language of a, a conference official who said, oh, the first wave we let out real easy, but the next one now we're fighting like hell. Oh, we're really, we're making it as hard as we can for them now. And it's something that they're saying out loud, something they're doing very intentionally. I'm not saying all of them. I'm just saying some of them, it's, it's quite obvious that the original terms of exit 
uh, were not generating an outcome that they liked, so they are changing the rules midstream, which is just, if you've ever played a game, like, that's that's infuriating. If you've ever tried to have a relationship with somebody, you know, I just think of uh, when uh, Kramer and Seinfeld make a bet, and then... Um, Halfway through, it's not going Kramer's way, so he says, bet's off. And Seinfeld says, you know, the whole point of a bet is you stick with it regardless of what happens. I mean, this this is, it requires principled people. Um, the institution did not want to believe that there would be this much interest in leaving. People are voting with their feet. I mean, people have been voting with their feet for decades. They've just been leaving churches. Now local churches are wanting to leave with their assets intact, which a lot of people like me think is a reasonable thing to ask. And it hurts to see how many people are interested in that, but that that doesn't mean that you're within your rights to change the rules um, that are that we agreed on. It, it just it's not right in a fundamental sense, and I think I think a lot of people down the line are going to have a hard time justifying that sort of behavior um, if it continues going on. So I think Lambrecht is right to uh, to raise these concerns. The problem is that. He's associated with the right-leaning caucus group, and so he's going to be eagerly dismissed just by the virtue of the fact that good news is at the top of this article. There are a lot of people that are just not going to feel compelled to even consider that, and I think that's a shame. I hope what you've seen as I've, I've gone through these things is I'm willing to not just consider but give voice to, air uh, things from the other side that might be possible. You know, With the intention, I'm going to hopefully come back and revisit all of them, and, and if they're true— Hopefully I can say, yeah, my side did things wrong at this point. Um, but if, if, if it's a foregone conclusion, I'm on the good side, the side of right, and anyone who bothers me is a bad guy, uh, oof, that's not a good place to be. Um, and I, I would connect that to uh, the final thing. I, I'm hoping to do an actual report next week on Bishop Bickerton's um, State of the Church address that he did yesterday. And I have a few good affirmations of that to say, but I'm very concerned that this mentality of we're the good guys, we're on the right side of history, they're the bad guys, they're the bullies, that that is just throughout the whole thing, and it really concerns me. Um, the, the, the short thing I would offer here is I did not see any evidence that Bishop Bickerton has really tried to understand conservative people like me. As, uh, as I watched it, I did not get the impression that, that he understood me. Um, but I did get the impression that he's very hostile to me and people like me. And I think that that's unfortunate. I think um, I would agree, you know, I didn't talk about it, but uh, Lon Paris came out with another article. Um, it has the picture of Notre Dame, the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame burning. I think it's, well, I'm not going to try and guess the title. But at the end of it, he says... All along, the institution should have been collaborating with conservative caucus groups to try and negotiate a peaceful exit. Um, if that had happened, I think things would look very differently than they do now. I think it's really unfortunate that we find ourselves at this place, given the amount of time that we were given to prepare for separation. We all knew it was coming, and now that it's here, we're just not doing very well with it. Um, so um, I'm going to to ruminate and, and pray on that a little bit, but I'll, I'll come back to the State of the Church address next week. Um, that's going to conclude what I have to offer today. If, if you think this is helpful, if any of it was interesting to you, feel free to pass it along. Feel free to interact with me. Uh, if you have resources I should consult, 
Um, I'm going to continue reporting on individual annual conferences. So if you're from an annual conference that I haven't reported on yet, um, send me some articles, some, some content on what's going on where you are. Um, I'd like to know. I think we, we all need to, to share information with one another so that we're empowered to make good decisions. Um, and also, if I've already reported on your annual conference, just keep me in the loop. Uh, I try and follow Chris Ritter's People Need Jesus updates. He's updating that like every day with articles and, and links and stuff. Um, and so uh, I hope you stay updated too. If, if the least you can do is watch this, I'm glad you have. And uh, thanks. I hope you have a good day.